lot of these feelings do have a lot to do with being a minority in a field that's largely made up of white men and women. And as a woman of color, I feel like I'm still fighting to be held to the same regard and get certain opportunities and be taken as seriously as others, which is exactly why I'm so passionate about elevating and amplifying so many other voices from other runners and people of color in my in my stories and in my work, because if not for someone like me, a woman and fellow runner of color, putting them at the attention of the editors who get to make these publishing decisions, many of these stories might not be told. That is today's guest, Amelia Benton on Strong Runner Chick Radio. In today's episode, we chat all about Amelia's work as a freelance journalist who is currently living in Houston, Texas, and covers a variety of health, running, and fitness in various publications, including Runner's World, Women's Health, Self Shape, and the Houston Chronicle. As a biracial Latina, Amelia is especially grateful to have had recent opportunities to write about racial justice and racial injustice, especially when it comes to sharing people's real life stories as they relate to both running and their everyday lives. Amelia is also an avid runner herself, having completed 10 marathons and 30-something half marathons. She's had a longtime goal to qualify for the Boston Marathon, which she aims to do at the 2022 Houston Marathon next January. Now, let's get to the show. Hello, Strong Runner Chicks. Welcome back to another episode of SRC Radio. It's Megan here today, and I'm joined by Amelia Benton, who I'm very excited to chat with. Amelia has been a guest on Allie on the Run. Um, she also was just on another uh, podcast. She'll probably share more. She's been on a lot of media outlets recently. Um, she's a writer, uh, seems like just an incredible person. I'm very excited to get to know you, Amelia, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you were also recently just featured on the Diverse We Run page. I wanted to also call that out. Uh, I love seeing features on there and was happy to see your face on there as well. So um, yeah, you've you've been, it sounds like you've been quite busy. How have, How's everything <laughs> been going on your end? Uh, yeah, pretty good. I mean, yeah, you're right. I have been pretty busy. Busy. It's kind of been um, a blessing in disguise. I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of people, especially freelancers, I was I was nervous that my workload might slow down a bit and I might like face kind of um, like a slump in my work. But it actually turned out to be the complete opposite. And with a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of, I guess, current events and development in the news, it kind of. Uh, created a lot of opportunities for me to be able to cover a lot of really important topics in this yeah. year. So, absolutely. And I hear you're also you're down in Houston. Um, that's mm -hmm. where my family lives. And I know right now it's probably uh, maybe I had seen on Instagram it was um, it's getting pretty warm out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I take it so maybe yeah. some of those early morning runs are starting to happen a bit more. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And we actually got kind of lucky this week. This this week, we had a few mornings where it was like in uh, like in the low 60s and not super humid, which is a rare occurrence wow. in, Houston, in Houston in May. So definitely appreciating mornings like that. It's definitely getting to that point now where I'm not going to be able to sleep in very late in the mornings if I don't want to fry in the sun on my morning runs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always joke. It's, it's hard to find hills there. I'm a big trail runner. So, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to go in search of the hills, but you definitely get heat training no doubt about it most mm -hmm. of the year. So yeah. 
Hartfield's character. Um, so I want to go back just kind of getting, you know, uh, getting into your story a little bit and, um, how you've got started in running. So how did you initially get interested in running? And when you were growing up, was this something, you know, that was encouraged or maybe influenced by your family your community or your culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, not really. I was never very athletic as a child. When I was in elementary school and middle school, my parents sent my twin sister and me to like recreational summer tennis camps when we were younger, um, you know, just like just for something fun to do in the summer. I think my dad secretly hoped we might become like the next Venus, Venus and Serena Williams or something like that, but we were never that good at it. And then, um, you know, fast forward to when I was in high school, I for the first um, couple of years in high school, I wasn't athletic at all. I didn't play any sports. And uh, in my second semester of my sophomore year uh, in my PE class, I don't remember what exactly happened, but for some reason, our PE teacher just decided she was not going to teach us or like lead our class anymore. We were just expected to like change into our gym clothes and, and running shoes every day. But then we were just like, uh, you know, released outside and left her own devices. And a lot of people just like sat around and socialized. Some people walked around the track. And I guess I felt like I wanted to be doing something to be active. And so I started running on the track. And over the next few months, I built up to running one mile nonstop, two miles nonstop, and eventually three miles nonstop. And so fast forward to close to the end of the semester, I was in one of my other classes and I got a note from my health teacher that said, see me after class. And my initial re reaction was uh, like, I thought I was in trouble. Like I thought he thought I cheated on a test or something. Oh, no. <laughs> and, I, and I went to go see him. And the first thing he says is, I hear you've been running. And he was actually the high school cross country coach and uh, long distance track coach. And I guess I had some, uh, some of my friends were in that PE class with me who were actually on the track and cross country teams. And uh, I'm sure they had tried to talk to me themselves. Like they were probably trying to convince me themselves to, uh, to join the team with them. And I'm sure I just like brushed them off uh, because, you know, they were much faster than me. And I'm sure I told them like, no, like I'm like, I'm not an athlete. Like you're on a whole other level than me. Uh, and so, um, so I think one of them, you know, talked to the, our teacher and their coach about it to try to get him to talk to me. And um, I think I, you know, I kind of said the same things to him, but he um, convinced me to at least think about it. And at this point it was the end of the semester. So, uh, so that track season was uh, about to wrap up. And I don't remember like what happened then, like the next year, I did not go out for the cross country team the following fall. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but I just, but I did join the track team uh, the following um, spring semester. So a year after that interaction happened and uh, I rotated between running the 800, 1500 and 3000 meter events. Uh, and especially toward the end, especially most of my season, my senior year, I was almost always running the 3000 in our meets. And I also did uh, a season of cross country my senior year. And I was never that fast. You know, my cross country 5k times were like 24, 25 minutes, which is decent, but it's not, you know, it's not really competitive at that level, but I had a lot of fun with it. You know, I had friends on the team and my coaches were super encouraging. Um, I still keep in touch with both of them actually. And they're always telling me that they're so happy to see that 
I've kept up with running as long as I have because so many young runners get caught up in the idea that they'll never be as good as they were in high school when that's really, especially for, for female long distance runners, that's really not true. Like a lot of, especially for women, like you can really be your best running self and run it and like reach your peak and run at your best, like well into your thirties. You know, I ran yeah. my half marathon PR, uh, which was a, you know, kind of a breakthrough for me when I broke 140 in the half marathon, when I was, um, you know, almost about to turn 33 and I've had the goal to qualify for Boston for a long time. And I feel like I've never been in a better position to go after a goal like that. So I'm really, so I'm, you know, I was happy with that experience that I had in high school because I think it set the stage for it to be a lifelong habit. And I never expected that running would would grow to be such a big part of my life, especially such a big part of my professional life, the way it has been now decades later. That's so awesome to hear that just about your experience that it it sounds like overall, it was pretty positive in the sense Mm -hmm. of cultivating this love for the sport and this approach to longevity. And yeah, what you said there about, I mean, I'll never be as fast as I was in high school. Gosh, I mean, for me that (laughs) I believe that to be true, at least in like the mile, the 800, you know, the shorter (laughs) distances where I think as you get older, it just seems to me like, unless you're really specialized, a lot of us kind of go towards the marathon, the half, the, you know, the longer distances. And I wonder why that is, if that's just like, you know, a natural progression, or if that's maybe as we age, like where our bodies want to be is, you know, maybe just developing more endurance. So that's interesting Mm -hmm. that you mentioned that. And it sounds now that you've, or it seems you've done quite a few marathons, 10, 10 or more. Mm -hmm. 10. Wow. Um, yeah. What was the draw initially to get, to get into the marathon? Uh, yeah. So after I graduated from high school, I kept up with running on my own in college just to like, you know, stay in shape and, uh, you know, do something healthy for myself. And I would run most mornings by myself. Uh, it's, it's feels so like funny and strange to say, but when I was in college and even uh, for the first couple of years after I graduated, like, even though I had a lot of friends and I knew a lot of people, I didn't know anyone else personally who ran. So I trained by myself. And when I was in college, most mornings before classes, I would run, um, from, I would run the mile, the half mile or mile or so from my dorm to the on-campus gym, um, because the, neighborhood that my, I went to Hofstra University in Long Island, New York, and the town and the neighborhood that it was in was known to not be very safe. And this was like pre-smartphone, pre-GPS watch and everything like that. So I was just not comfortable really venturing out by myself in an area that I wasn't familiar with at all. So I would run the half mile or mile or so to, to the on-campus gym and run a few miles on the treadmill or on the indoor track and then run back to my dorm. And I would do that five or six days a week. Uh, so uh, so I guess you could say I was in, in decent running shape, you know, all the way, all throughout my college years and until I graduated. And, uh, at some point in college, I think my sophomore or junior year, I kind of got clued into the pro running scene. And I remember following the New York city marathon, um, I think in 2007, the year that Paula Radcliffe won, uh, the same year that she had a baby. And I remember just feeling, uh, like really inspired by that and thinking like, you know, running the New York City Marathon seems like a really cool goal to shoot toward after I graduate and have the time to put into it. 
So I looked into what it would take to get into the New York City Marathon. And I think most people are more familiar with uh, like the lottery system and the charity system, but Mm -hmm. the New York Runners has this program for local runners where you can, uh, you know, you sign up to be a member and you do nine of their races and a volunteer shift at one the year before you want to run the marathon. And if you complete that program, you can get guaranteed entry into the marathon the following year. So that's what I did um, my senior year. Well, the, my final semester of my senior year and the, um, you know, the few months that followed after I graduated. Actually that year or throughout my college years, I had done a bunch of the New York Roadrunners shorter races, like everything from 5Ks, four milers, uh, 10Ks, and eventually a 15K. And so my senior year, my twin sister and I decided to do our first half marathon together. And we did the New York Roadrunners Manhattan Half Marathon in Central Park in January of 2009 on a very crisp 15 degree morning. <laughs> and uh, so that was so that was my first uh, I guess Did you say I 15. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I think oh. it went, I think that contributed to it going way better than I ever would have expected it to, because I don't remember ever feeling nervous like that morning about covering the distance. I was just more nervous about like not being too cold. And so I never, oh, it like boy. never occurred to me to stop and walk or like even stop for water because I just didn't want to get cold. And, you know, I felt like the you know, I felt like the race went well. It felt like a solid run. I was happy with, with, um, how it turned out. I ran a two Oh seven, which didn't really mean anything to me at the time. And, um, after that, you know, I kind of just focused my energy on, you know, finishing my final semester and graduating from college and finding a job. And, uh, after I graduated and moved to the city, um, and, you know, continued my job hunt, I decided to, um, you know, finish out that program to qualify for the marathon for the following year. So I did my remaining eight races from June through December of 2009. And uh, that was a really nice distraction from, you know, from the stress of constantly interviewing for jobs in the middle of the recession and wondering what my professional future held. And back then it was, uh, you know, it was really nice that that program was really accessible and affordable. Back then the race registration fees were like 15 to $17 each, even for like the half marathons, (laughs) right? Because I don't think that like, if I were just graduating from college now, um, what now, like 12 years later, like with what the races cost now, I don't think I would be able to afford to do that. Mm -hmm. So I feel really lucky that I was able to have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it was, um, just very impactful and like a good way to kick it off. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I'm all for, I think, you know, supporting race directors and races, and I'm so happy they're starting to come back, but yeah, it is, it, it is sort of out of, out of reach for a lot of folks. It's, it's not just, Oh, let me just put on a pair of shoes. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I hear that a lot now it's um, there are so many barriers and I think cost can be a barrier too. So yeah, that's certainly a factor. Um, jumping back there a little bit too, to your time in college, we had had someone reach out that went to your college and wanted to know a little bit more about your experience. And I'm curious how you chose to go to a school out in New York. And I take it that was from Houston at the time. So yeah, kind of what that jump was like and, and how you chose your college specifically. 
Yeah. So um, actually, no, I was not in Houston at the time. Actually, my my mom passed away when I was 11. And a couple years after that, my dad decided to move us, um, you know, himself, my twin sister Uh and me out to the small town of Newport, Oregon. And so that's where I went to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's where I went to high school. And that's where I graduated from high school. And um, I, you know, for as long as I can remember, I've always loved writing and I've always uh, felt that I was pretty good at it. And when I was, uh, you know, like in middle school and high school, I really, I loved you know, reading anything, reading books, and especially reading magazines. And I remember reading uh, one of my favorite teen magazines, Cosmo Girl, and <laughs> reading the the uh, editor's letter every month. And uh, the editor's letter, uh, it was a Tusa Rubenstein at the time. She was the founding editor of that magazine. And she would always like sign off her letters, you know, saying like, email me about anything at all. So I decided to do that to uh, to ask for some advice about potentially pursuing a career in magazine journalism. And she wrote me back with a ton of really great advice. She wrote me like a whole page worth of advice. So I printed it out and put it on my wall. (laughs) And she, one thing that she said was that if I'm really serious about pursuing a career and I want to work in magazines to consider attending college in the New York City area, because then I would be in a position to be able to easily go in for in-person interviews for for internships and for jobs um, at some of these magazines because because most of these big publishing companies are based in New York City. So that's what I ended up doing. Um, My dad took my sister and me one spring break when we were in high school to go visit colleges in that area. And I eventually settled on Hofstra because their journalism program had a really good reputation. And it was, uh, you know, about a half hour train ride to New York City. And I was really happy with my experience there. You know, the program, the journalism program is really great. And I found some really great mentors and some of the professors I had there and I did not regret it at all. Good. I'm so happy to hear that. And it's nice. It's just, it, I don't know. There's like a level of just having this, this inspiration and, um, you know, from mentors and, and that ability to reach out to someone like you did, I think is really admirable and probably also hopefully inspired you in a sense to, Mm -hmm. to pursue that career further. Um, so in your path and you talked about this, I'll encourage listeners to go to alley on the run to hear all about your path and freelance and deciding to go off on your own and journalism. Um, but, uh, how did you decide to become a writer and specifically start writing about running? Was that something that was early on an interest or, or did this come about later on? Uh, no, the running part. No, not really. I guess I, when I was doing my internships in college, I interned at Glamour Magazine and, and later at, at Cosmo Girl. Sadly, Atusa was long gone by then. <laughs> uh, and I also interviewed, or I'm sorry, interned at uh, Moore Magazine through the American Society of Magazine Editors uh, internship program. So I kind of thought that uh, women's magazines in general was the area that I wanted to go, that I wanted to zero in on specifically, but those, uh, those jobs, that industry has always been super competitive. And it was especially more so graduating at the time that I did in the middle of the recession. And uh, so my, so by the time I graduated, like I was, I, can't even tell you how many interviews I went on and I was not in a position to be picky about about where I ended up. And my first job 
actually ended up being my first, you know, real quote unquote, real job, real full-time job was as an editorial assistant at a medical research publishing company for a couple of medical trade publications. And uh, by that point, I had done so many internships and so many interviews, and I'd been living in New York City for a long time that I'd, I felt like I was kind of burned out on the experience. And I kind of felt like I'd gotten to live out that dream of experiencing what it was like to work in the, like, you know, like in the thick of it, like right there in the magazine world in within one of those companies. And New York is so expensive, especially when you're, you know, you're fresh out of college and you have student loans to pay and you're pursuing a career path in an industry that's not known to be particularly lucrative, especially when you're first starting out. So after uh, several months at that first job, I decided I was ready for a change and I decided to move back to my original hometown of, of Houston because I had a lot of connections here in the healthcare industry and a family friend set me up with an admin job so I could move back with a job and you know kind of figure out what I wanted to do long term. And so I did that job for about a year before I moved on to a full-time um, to another full-time job at the Houston Chronicle as a staff writer and copy editor. And um, I really enjoyed that job, but uh, like a lot of people in this industry, I was severely underpaid. And so after, so after a few years there, I you know, started to look, started to see where I could actually pursue some career advancement. And I moved on to another job back in the in the healthcare field, this time working for one of the hospitals in the Texas Medical Center in a position where I actually could use my editorial expertise. And I actually ended up getting laid off from that job after a year. And about a month before I got laid off, I had had an idea for a story I wanted to pitch to Runner's World uh, for a personal essay. And I had, I wasn't really sure how to go about that. And I had seen that Allie Feller of Allie on the Run, I've actually known her for a while. We, uh, you know, we actually worked in the same, in the same building when I lived in New York. And so I had been in touch oh. with her for a long time and she had been freelancing herself for, I think a couple of years at that point. And she just seemed to really know the ins and outs of it and had like she had the hang of it and really knew what she was doing. So I emailed her for some advice on on what to do, like how to how to send that first pitch and like what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. And she gave me a lot of really good advice and and helped me to do that. And um, actually, when she uh, when I was first in touch with her and I was still at that job, even though I got a lot of great advice and feedback from her, I still wasn't very confident in myself and in, in that idea. And so I kind of just sat on it. And then about a month later, I lost my job and suddenly had all this time on my hands. And I figured, you know, I might as well go ahead and send it to them. What's the worst that could happen? If they say no, I'll just, you know, keep focusing my energy on finding another job. But they didn't say no. And they were really into the idea. And they had me write the essay. And it got a really great response from their audience, which really surprised me. And afterward, my editor told me uh, to please keep pitching them. And that was kind of a wake up call for me because I kind of, I kind of thought that writing that story would be like a one off thing while I looked for another job. And I was, I didn't even think I would keep freelancing in the meantime, I thought I would just focus my energy on finding another job. Uh, but when she told me that I decided to circle back with Allie 
and ask for some more advice about, you know, pursuing other opportunities at other health and fitness publications and, um, you know, some advice on how to pursue more of those relationships and actually try to try to make this a, a full-time thing. And the rest is kind of history from there. I mean, it's not like my, my workload did not blow up overnight. You know, I kind of spent the next year and a half or so building these relationships and pitching a bunch of places, often not hearing anything back. And it's taken a lot of hard work to get to the point where I am now to have a lot of these opportunities that I have now and even have some people uh, reaching out to work with me after seeing my work in other places. So I don't take any of it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat to hear that. I didn't realize you and Allie had had so much previous contact and it seems like in a lot of industries, this probably goes to show, I mean, I I'm in healthcare and worksite wellness and it's, it's like a smaller world sometimes than you realize and knowing Mm -hmm. people and connections is so important. So yeah, that just can't be under, under, understated or undervalued, but, um, Mm -hmm. it does seem like you, you've done a stellar job uh, making those connections and, yeah. And staying at it. Um, I I'm curious. So kind of just looking overall at, you know, I think running and writing both and, you know, whether it's in our careers or in our running journeys, um, this, uh, concept of imposter syndrome comes up a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely something I faced myself and I know a lot of others struggle with in some way. So it's, it's almost like, I think it's not unique to one, you know, one path or one person, but it seems like we all have maybe faced this at one time or another, but, um, you had talked about it a little bit with Allie, um, facing this as a writer in the running world. And I'm wondering why that might be, and, and maybe even broader, like kind of talking back or, um, jumping back to when you were growing up, you had said you didn't really identify as being athletic or fast enough to Mm -hmm. run. And, and maybe if that is intertwined at all, like maybe what, what do you feel like contributes to those feelings? And also on the, on the same coin or on a different coin, what, um, do you feel like has, has maybe helped you overcome those feelings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, that's something that's always kind of been tucked in the back of my mind, but it's only been in the last couple of years or so, especially that I've been able to recognize and accept that a lot of these feelings do have a lot to do with being a minority in a field that's largely made up of white men and women. And as a woman of color, I feel like I'm still fighting to be held to the same regard and get certain opportunities and be taken as seriously as others, which is exactly why I'm so passionate about elevating and amplifying so many other voices from other runners and people of color in my in my stories and in my work, because if not for someone like me, a woman and fellow runner of color, putting them at the attention of the editors who get to make these publishing decisions, many of these stories might not be told. And I sometimes still struggle with imposter syndrome and questioning whether I deserve a seat at this, at the running media table is, uh, you know, is, is because of that. Like, I feel like being a minority has a lot to do with that. And it's only been in the last couple of years or so that I've been able to kind of reconcile these feelings and, you know, flashback to things that I witnessed or ways that I was treated when I worked full-time in the industry, or even, you know, going as far back as the way I was treated or things that I was said by my teachers in high school and recognize now that, yeah, like that wasn't right. That wasn't appropriate. And that shouldn't have happened. And 
while thinking back on some of those experiences does sometimes make me angry. It's also empowering to know that like now, like working for myself, you know, I don't have to be afraid to stand up for myself or call things out um, in, you know, fear for the sake of my job. And yeah, and a challenge that I've kind of faced recently and um, I've talked about a little bit more recently is that when it comes to being recognized for my work, sometimes I've seen some of my articles shared on social media or talked about at length on other podcast interviews and the, uh, the person talking about them or sharing them doesn't bother to credit me as the writer, but I've seen a lot of these same people when they're sharing the work of, you know, of, you know, a white writer or creator there's, there's no question if they're, if they're going to recognize who, who produced it. And this is an example, you know, this is a prime example of unconscious bias. Like they might not be thinking, you know, thinking in that way. I'm sure they're not thinking in that way. Like, I'm not going to share this because it's, because it's a minority runner, but maybe they are thinking like, it's not worth mentioning because people probably aren't going to know this writer or this creator. Mm-hmm. And that just contributes to yeah. the problem. <laughs> and I'm Certainly. not, and I don't bring stuff like that up to yeah. like harp on my, my small following or whatever, but to emphasize that for, for someone like me, uh, a person of color in, in a field that's largely dominated by white people, it could make or break if someone important notices their work and pursues that person for an opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, if your name is never mentioned or noted, or you're not recognized, then how will people find your work and know who you are? And that's mm-hmm. so important. I think, um, yeah, that's really worth bringing up. And I remember you talked about that at length in Ally, um, Ally on the Run as well. And so I just think that can't be emphasized enough to continue to credit writers like yourself for your work. Um, and you're doing a lot of important work, especially these days in in the sport or in the context of um, representation and sport, talking more about social justice and inclusivity. I also thought it was interesting, as you mentioned, with imposter syndrome, maybe not feeling that as much out on your own. I, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I noticed that sometimes as people do go out on their own, they face that even more. So um, that's really interesting and, and probably freeing to, to be your own kind of boss or, or <laughs> to be able to not, um, yeah, have to report to someone in that context, but, um, the other, on the other coin, right? Like the criticism could also be taken more personally, perhaps if it's Mm -hmm. a piece of yours or it's, it's really your own work. Um, so when it comes to, you know, uh, putting yourself out there and critique, how have you handled receiving that kind of backlash? Or do you have a specific example that maybe has been recent, um, and, you know, this could help serve, I think, for anyone that's trying to use their voice more, but maybe facing that critique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely been tough sometimes, you know, with some of these stories that I've written, especially for Runner's World with regard to social justice and racial injustice on a national level, the response has been largely positive, uh, but, at a, but at a local level, especially living somewhere like Texas, like I do, a lot of people still believe that these topics are political and don't belong on on media platforms like that. And, you know, I've had people I know within the local running community here in Houston and even people I used to train with choose to distance themselves from me because of this work that I'm doing. And some have even gone as far as to send me messages saying they can't, they can no longer in good conscience continue to support my work now that I've gotten political. And that's 
super yeah. frustrating to yeah. hear. And it's easy. You know, I do have, I do also have a lot of people here in Houston who do support me and it's, and I know they mean well, and it's easy for them to say like, screw the haters and you don't need people like that in your life anyway, but it's still hard to deal with stuff like that because many of these people were people who I once really respected and you know, it, it, it sucks to know that they never held me to the same regard and never really viewed me as an equal, but it serves as a reminder that this work that I'm doing really is important. And it's a reminder that what I'm, that I don't want this work that I'm doing to be in vain. You know, one of the reasons that I pitched uh, one of these bigger stories to runners world last year, about a year ago now, where I interviewed 11 runners, uh, runners of color about their experiences with racism as it relates to running and their perceptions of diversity and inclusion and inclusion within the running community was because of that, you know, like this was about a year ago when the whole story about the tragic shooting of Ahmaud Arbery was, you know, really blowing up. And I saw a lot of people, you know, posting their black square and their run with their hashtag, I run with mod. And a lot of these people, like that was it. And they never talked about these topics again. And that's exactly what I don't want to see happening, you know, because people of color aren't, we're not a trend that should be reduced to a hashtag. And it's exactly box or yeah. yeah, So mm -hmm. that's why it was important for me to try to, to get that story to come to fruition because I think that's a key aspect of this work that people need to be doing is elevating and amplifying the voices of people who are directly affected by these issues. And to say that it's political sends the message that you don't see us in these in these spaces and that that you know we that we're not welcome to share it to share these experiences and be seen and heard. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And I think for anyone listening to that maybe is, is wondering how can they elevate or amplify voices, you know, um, just maybe they don't have, right. Maybe they don't have a large following or a media platform, but like, what else can they do to highlight, elevate, amplify voices? I mean, is this, is this resharing articles? Is this, you know, advocacy work in their communities or, um, you know, are there any, maybe creative ways that you've seen people step up and it, whether that's brands or individuals and, and really start to take part in this work that you've maybe been inspired or impacted by. Mm -hmm. For individuals. Um, I think what you said about sharing these stories, that's a great example right there. You know, not just, not just commenting somewhere about it, but actually sharing it to your own audience and starting a conversation within your own circle about it. And, you know, as an individual, when you show up to runs and events that have a diverse group of people, make an effort to actually engage with people who are, who are different from you. Uh, and as far as, you know, orga organizations, um, I've actually had, you know, kind of a, a personal experience recently where I've tried to get involved with a local running organization here in Houston and try to contribute to their DEI efforts, especially on, on their social media platforms. And the feedback that I've tried to provide has not been welcomed or well-received. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's, that's an example right there that I would say, you know, I would say to organizations, like don't put out vague messaging that doesn't really say anything at all. So you can just check a box and move on. I would encourage more organizations and companies to perhaps have 
you know, have someone in your community or your organization who is a person of color, maybe do a sensitivity read on your posts and public communications to make sure that the messaging is actually impactful and respectful and not trivializing the issues that got us here in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So much to learn there. And I mean, really, as you said, just, I think taking criticism and feedback is one piece that, I mean, just as humans, it's tough enough sometimes to, to do that and be able to, to recognize that you're not always right, or that there may be a better way to do things. And especially in this context, I think that's so important to, to take that. So yeah, that's, um, and, and to recognize, you know, or try to find ways to improve. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely more work to be done. Um, so you had mentioned there just, you know, being in Houston, um, and I, I think you had noted one of the more diverse cities in the U S one of the most, I mean, perhaps, um, is this reflected in the running community? Like, do you see the running community there is fairly diverse or fairly welcoming and kind of on the on that same note, like for those that maybe live in a less diverse city, you had said earlier, Newport, Oregon, Mm -hmm. I don't imagine living in Oregon. I know it's not super diverse out here. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, for someone that is maybe in a, uh, primarily white place, right. And they don't interact with a lot of, um, uh, of other folks. Um, but they want to maybe play a role, you know, or is there anything else that, you would suggest for someone that might be a little isolated, but we can start with Houston too, just kind of like taking the, the context of that city first. Yeah. So Houston, so you're right. Houston is a super diverse city and it does, it definitely does extend to the running community. The running community here is super diverse, but I say often that a lot of, you know, a lot of newer runners, especially newer runners who are people of color might never know that because because runners of color here just aren't highlighted to the same degree like on social media platforms for a lot of these organizations as our white counterparts and that could be discouraging for some for someone who's interested in entering the community themselves so that's an area that could use some improvement for sure probably in a lot of cities across the country and uh, I would say that for the most part the running community here is super welcoming, but I think a challenge that many groups are facing here and around the country is kind of, um, you know, breaking down the, like the, I guess, I don't know if there's a better word for it, but Carolyn Sue of Diverse We Run once described it as, you know, the of these, of these running communities, like you'll see it, like there's groups, there's running clubs that are almost all white or are almost all black. And there's still work that needs to be done there to you know, to unite everyone. And I think a, a simple way that groups could do that is to simply invite other groups to, to join you. You know, don't just don't just put out the this vague messaging that running is for everyone and everyone is welcome, but actually take the initiative and invite people, invite people who are different from you to run with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one as well um, to do that outreach and to find those people. Mm-hmm. And I, I can sense listeners might be going, but how do I find other, you know, individuals? And, and it, it is, it's work. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's something I've come to terms with too, is like, like, I don't know, um, just it, it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. Mm-hmm. And that's like 
this long-term process. It's not just something you can, you can change in an instant and, um, yeah, yeah. Not expecting your own self to create all this change by yourself, but to know that it's a, a community effort and that it, mm-hmm. it does take time, but then there is that level of personal responsibility too. So mm-hmm. just multifaceted, but yeah, lots to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else on the, you know, the note of your current writing that is maybe firing you up or exciting you, uh, you know, this could be future projects, anything currently you're, you're highlighting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I also wanted to say that I do think that running publications like women's running and runner's world are moving in the right direction and allowing people to share these important stories. Like they're these important stories with regard to social justice, people's lived truth and experiences with, with racism on their websites and on their print pages. And, um, you know, I feel like some people maybe have thought that I've been doing a lot of this coverage in the last couple of years also just to follow uh, this trend and chase some personal career growth and glory. But I think some people also forget that, you know, I am also a person of color who's directed by these issues too, who's directly affected by these issues too. And it's sad to say, but even two or three years ago, these pitches probably wouldn't have been approved or accepted by the editors at this publications. You know, I've had staff editors and other prominent media figures confirm that to me, that these conversations were had in these editorial meetings and these topics were deemed to be too political and controversial to approach. And I'm glad to see that publications are shifting away from that mindset and, you know, opening their, opening their mindset in that way. Certainly. Yeah. And I also wanted to bring up just in the context of this week to the, um, the, the missing and, uh, murdered indigenous women, um, Mm -hmm. has come about and I don't know, there's so much controversy and I haven't, I don't know enough to speak much to it, but on all these posts being removed and whether that was Instagram's, you know, just Instagram went down on the fifth or what was caused by that. But I, I'd love to see more coverage in that context as well, because there are a lot of groups now that are saying, you know, we need, we need representation as well. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not just, um, yeah, yeah. BIPOC doesn't necessarily, that term doesn't encompass everyone. And there are, um, there's a lot more to be covered. So for sure. I just saw a post about that this morning too. And I don't feel like Mm -hmm. I know enough either to be able to, to comment on it, but I feel the same way It, it probably, it shouldn't have happened. And I'm curious to get to the bottom of it and see yeah. what happened there. Yeah. And I guess, as I say that I take responsibility for, I, I, I think there's this level of weird, like a, I'm experiencing this like imposter syndrome mm-hmm. initially in this whole conversation of, oh, I don't know enough to talk about these topics. Like I'm not well-trained in social justice. I mean, just, you know, as a, I think we all have this personal responsibility to not only educate ourselves, but to speak up, even if we don't know enough and I'm open to criticism and, and getting better in it, but it's better to say something than just keep quiet and, and to For share sure. the, Agreed. Again, because to often yeah. silence and often yeah. silence and actions or lack thereof speak louder than words. They do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, hopefully we'll, we'll get more coverage and and continue to amplify those voices, um, especially in the context of everything that's happened this week. So, um, I wanted to, to ask you when you're looking back on your younger self, like just getting started in maybe freelance writing or even in the running world, what advice would you give? 
Yeah, I would tell myself to be afraid to advocate for myself and to speak up with my ideas and and ask for what I want and go after the stories that I want to write. I can honestly say that now I don't take it personally if a pitch that I'm excited about gets turned down, which probably wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. You know, now that I've been at this for a few years, I ask I ask myself, what do I have to lose with, sent, with just sending a pitch? What's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen is that they say no. And now I know firsthand that when that happens, oftentimes someone else is very likely to say yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's ever been the case. I, I haven't quite pitched many articles, but um, if you maybe resubmit that or a similar pitch on a different topic and it, you know, maybe it doesn't all go to waste or maybe like you said, another publication picks it up. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's good that these conversations are being revisited. Um, the final question we have is what does being a strong runner chick mean to you? Yeah, um, I guess to me, it means believing in yourself and the idea that it's okay to run for the sense of personal accomplishment and just to do something for yourself. That's primarily why, why I run for myself to reach my personal goals and to, for, you know, for something to ultimately feel, feel good about accomplishing and also to stand up for yourself and others who are not being seen and heard, even if it means Mm -hmm. risking an unfavorable response. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that response yet before when we asked that question. So I really like that to use your, your voice as well. That's a good part of it. Um, when it comes to your own running goals and what you have upcoming, I know, again, it's, it's been hard to plan these last several months and year, but is there anything you're, uh, you're looking forward to this year or personal goals that you're currently working on? For sure. A goal that I've had for a long time is to qualify for the Boston marathon. And that's actually yeah. something that I was training for, for the 2020 Houston marathon, which was in January, 2020. So this was pre pandemic, pre COVID and everything. And I actually got injured a month out from the race. I, I was, you know, I was in, if I do say so myself, I was in pretty good shape to be able to, to be in a position to, to target that goal. That's, I had broken 140 in the half marathon about three or four months before that and had run some really solid tune-up races leading up to that. And then I got about a really ill-timed tendonitis in my foot a month out from the the race. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, from there, the, the pandemic running wise, it was kind of a blessing in disguise for me, because if, if that hadn't happened, if races were going on, I probably would have tried to like rush back into shape to try to find another race ASAP and probably would have like further run myself into the ground and possibly made my injury worse. And I feel like this last year or so has allowed me to build back up slowly. And it's only been in the last couple of months or so that I finally felt like I'm getting closer to my old running self. And I'm feeling really motivated now to train through the summer and fall and pursue that Boston qualifying goal next January at Houston again. Oh, yay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Houston was my first marathon and I have to say that's a great one, just nice and flat. And typically January is not too humid yet. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's going to be fun. I'm sure. And great energy too. Houston's a, just a wonderful community. So yeah. Excited for you. Can't wait. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thank you again so much for joining me for this episode. Really, really, um, impactful work that you're doing. And I encourage listeners to reach out and, uh, 
yeah, I, I know there's been a call this week for media contacts and I'm immediately thinking of you to help cover more native women, especially, uh, native indigenous women and their stories. So I sure hope, uh, to see more and, uh, from running media platforms as well in that space and, and just in representation, social justice work in general. So um, thanks again, Amelia. Great to chat. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Strong Runner Chicks Radio. Do us a favor and leave a review in iTunes to help spread awareness and foster the SRC community. Additionally, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Strong Run Chicks.